Nomine Patris et Filii, Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis, peccatoribus, nunc et in ora mortis nostre. Amen. In nomine Patris, et Filii, Spiritus Sancti, Amen. Through the prayers of the Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. Brethren in Christ, laude to Jesus Christus in secula. This is Timothy Flanders of the Meaning of Catholic. We are joined today once again by Michael Joseph. Michael, how you doing, brother? Good, Tim. A uh, lot of tangents since uh, our last show that I went on, so I'm trying to keep it in my head. But other than my brain kind of being a little overloaded, <laughs> doing all right. Yes, this is uh, very complex. A lot of crazy things going on, and we're going to see today how they get even crazier. So... This is Christ Against the Occult, Part 4, 1400 to 1700. We're going to be covering a lot of topics today. Once again, you can see the sources below are linked on the show notes. We have all the sources that Michael's going to go through uh, and more. Everything sourced. These are all sources. Everything here is coming from pretty much non-Catholic or Jewish sources. So these are all very verified things. This is not a conspiracy speculation or anything like that. Um, and we're going to be talking a lot about the Jews today. And once again, a reminder, just because that's always very controversial to talk about the Jews. This is a civil war among the Jews themselves. So the, the sort of revolutionary Kabbalist mystical Jews that we're going to be talking about today, which are having making problems with the church, are also being opposed by other Jews. So this is not this is not a something against Jews per se, even though that's obviously a factor. But uh, it is uh, something that we try to emphasize, which helps us both uh, validate the history uh, and also try to find some common cause to win over Jews to the true King. Jesus is King, and so that's what we're here to present in this presentation. So. Uh, Michael, do you want me to bring up uh, the Polishian map to start uh, actually, us off here? Before we do that, maybe I just make a couple additional comments on that. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I think that one of the issues here, we're going to talk a little bit about the Alambrados and the Spanish Inquisition as we go through this. And I think it might be more prudent to not say crypto Jews in this situation, but crypto Illuminous, something like that, um, because you're going to see that that continuity with a lot of the Gnostic stuff we've been talking about to varying degrees. And as you mentioned, there's that whole Mamamides controversy and, and whatnot that caused all these problems. And then later on, you're going to find after the expulsion, a lot of these problems happen when the Sephardic Jews mix with the Ashkenazi. And um, really, it's if you think about all the stuff we've sourced back to the original Gnosticism, uh, you know, the, the, the rebellion of Israel against the God of Israel in the most hardcore fashion and all that Alexandrian stuff. Um, you know, that's all lawlessness, right? It's, it's just saying the commandments don't matter. Right. And so if you're dealing with that kind of problem, then maybe the Jews who believe in the commandments could have a little bit more of understanding of some of the factors that the Spanish inquisition was dealing with because they were also dealing with it 
in their own history during this time. So again, there's perhaps more of an overlap and a harmony there if you can make that distinction. And so I think that oftentimes most of those types of Jews want to make those distinctions between these radical revolutionaries, whereas Catholics need to make that distinction as well. And so for both able to do that, you know, it's it's similar to are we going to call, you know, Nancy Pelosi a Catholic, right? And are we going to defend her just because she's a Catholic in name when she's behaving a lot like these Gnostic social, you know, socialist Marxist types or whatever, right? So it the Catholics have the same issue. And maybe that shows a continuity in terms of just, you know, the law and the God of Israel, even if we can you know, debate over the nature of the Messiah and things like that. Yeah, I think I, I think a good one-liner for anytime you encounter, just for the viewers, anytime you encounter somebody just making cracks about the Spanish Inquisition, you can point out to them, did you know the Spanish Inquisition was opposing the same people that the rabbis themselves were opposing? Newsflash. That, that's just a great counterpoint to help people understand the complexity of the situation that there's other Jews realizing the issues here among Jews or other Gnostic kind of groups or whatever. So and then Catholics and, yeah. can get mixed up in that and see a lot of that behavior and then start imparting that onto the Jews that aren't behaving like that. And then you have the real persecutions that happen, which are unfair and tied in with all this stuff as well. But at least there should be some understanding from both sides. That's how I would. Absolutely. Say. Yeah. The, the secret Judeis known, the sort of pact, the, the public charter with the Jews going back to St. Gregory the Great and before was broken on both sides. The Jews were breaking usury and, you know, getting greeter or whatever. And there was also Catholics who were um, profaning the name of Catholic by breaking out into mob violence and killing people and whatnot. So this is something that we need to be, honest about, we're going to be rational, and we're going to win over Jews or Catholics, both to conversion. Yeah, and I think uh, doing the map now is probably a good sure. time. Okay. So this is our map. We this is we went over this last time, and Michael's just going to recap. Go ahead. Yeah, so we've been uh, tracking the serpent, perhaps, here. <laughs> um, and it kind of looks a little serpent-esque with this kind of circular head going around the Alps, right? And so um, we talked all about this uh, coming from the east, and then now it's been affecting, you know, southern France and then all these other areas. And you can even see in the map it's going into London. Um, so think of this when we go through these next uh, times and then what happens in the Renaissance and where all of this occultism starts popping up and where you don't find as much of it, because I think it's going to be very relative to what happens during this period that we're talking about leading up to the Renaissance here, roughly, you know, 1300s through uh, the 1400s here. Uh, we'll begin with that. So you can go on to the next map that I have, the 14th century battles in Christendom. Um, this is just kind of very crudely summarizing all the factors here that uh, when looking more into the Avignon papacy here, uh, very, very interesting, the coordination is going on here. Um, so you had this conflict that we sort of touched upon, but I did a lot more research on it in the past few weeks or the past week. Um, the Avignon papacy for all its faults and all the polemics against it. Um, it was fighting these heresies. It was against the spiritual Franciscans. Obviously Southern France is where Avignon uh, is located. It was dealing with the Cathars. It was dealing with the Kabbalistic Jews. Meanwhile, you have the Mamamides type Jews who are dealing with the Kabbalah as well all in that same area. 
you have the Templar debacle. I'm not going to speculate on that. It's kind of a mystery. We, uh, I believe Mr. Keller, I think, asked about that last time. And I think that uh, that and in conjunction, there was an expulsion of the Jews in southern France by Philip the Fair. Um, now, he's the the most demonized French king maybe of all time. I don't know. <laughs> um, but consider that in conjunction with all this going on. So we have all this heresy. It's kind of really spreading like crazy in this area. So this is being suppressed. Now, this is where uh, Occam comes out of. He's he's tied to these uh, spiritual Franciscan types. Uh, he goes and hangs out with uh, the Holy Roman Emperor Louis IV, I believe is his name. And he is trying to excommunicate the Avignon papacy and get his own pope and call the Avignon papacy heretics. And he's protecting Occam. Occam teams up with the Oxford School, we might call it. And they're all kind of calling Thomas Aquinas stupid, for lack of a more elegant term. Um, and then we have these issues in the Low Countries with what are called the, the beggars and the beguines, if I'm pronouncing that right. These are kind of like Franciscan spiritual overlap where they're calling out the worldliness of like the idea of a hierarchy and, you know, are embracing poverty. But what's going to be very interesting is later on, they're going to kind of go to the opposite and form sort of this capitalism. And there's a weird connection of this with uh, Guadalupe in Spain that we'll talk about. And then lastly, in Venice, we have these ideas developing, which are very interesting, tied to a particular figure named Petrarch who is really like the OG guy for formulating the idea of the Dark Ages, the Babylonian captivity of the Avignon papacy, calling the French people dogs or barbarians or whatever, and, and bashing Charlemagne, and trying to go back to the Roman republics, the pagan ones, but he's still calling it Christian. So it sounds very strange to me. He sounds more Masonic-esque and almost like some of the founding fathers, if you will. Um and then, of course, we talked about the Fourth Crusade. Sometimes there's the accusations of a Frankish papal conspiracy. And so that's really, uh, you know, at the heart of the Avignon papacy here, right? If you're going to just broadly polemicize. So think about all these people who are attacking this papacy and, the, and the, the aristocracy around here. And they're also just trying to deal with all these heresies that, you know, are the Franciscan spirituals that lead to all the strange, weird Novus Ordo Marxist stuff that we're dealing with today, trying to prevent that. So... Maybe we should at least have some sympathy for what they're going through. That's what I would say. So, Tim, I don't know if you wanted to respond before I go on to the next one. Yeah, sure. Um, certainly the Avignon papacy, they are true popes. So there's a certain amount of grace of office, I think, that happens when you're the Bishop of Rome. And even if you're the Bishop of Rome in Avignon. So we still have uh, good things coming of the Avignon papacy. God brings good out of evil because it, it was still an evil thing that the Avignon papacy kind of happened because it ended up dividing Christendom. But uh, this is a really good point, I think, from from you, Michael. Um, I wanted to just for the viewers give a, a, a broader socioeconomic sort of political context to this period. And that is that the crusading movement, which has united Europe, Western Europe, uh, up until this point, really 1274, um, really starts to die away at this point when we get into 1300. And the key point is when the uh, reconciliation at, Le at Lyon, the Council of Lyons uh, number two, the reconciliation between Greeks and Latins, which was done by St. Bonaventure and St. Albert the Great, is undone. And the way it's undone 
is actually by uh, Charles of Anjou, who is in Sicily, and he wants to conquer Constantinople. So, that, I mean, if there's any cons- conspiracy that you know we can be blamed for, this is the man right here, Charles of Anjou, and he convinces the Pope, Pope uh, Martin the Fourth, who's a French Pope, uh, one of the first French popes, I think, to basically call a crusade. Uh, he he breaks the union that had been made with Constantinople. He calls this false crusade against Constantinople. And so this is really what breaks this down immediately. And which, I mean, if the Greeks are any, should be angry at us for anything, this is what they should be really angry at us for, most of all, because we basically had a union here, but it was broke very much from the Pope and from the Latin side. Um, but then there's uh, a revolt. And eventually the, the there's also this uh, dispute with Philip IV, Essentially, all of the kings, many of the kings of Europe are just becoming corrupted by the love of money. Basically, the bottom line is they're corrupted by the love of money and they're starting to fight each other more than trying to spread the gospel and trying to go on the crusade to defend the Christians of the East. So this is kind of the, the, the breakdown here. And eventually God brings great wrath in the Black Death and culminated in 1348. So and there's a massive plague. So uh, this is a the decline in the uh, church at this time. I just want to give a bigger context to this so that people understand what's going on here. It's very much the decline of Christendom in terms of widespread piety. Um, It's just a strong, far more revolutions, peasant revolutions. People are, kings are oppressing their people. They're levying more and more taxes so they can go on wars with other kings. It's just becoming, it's just unraveling essentially. So this is, this is the situation we, we find ourselves in. Yeah, and then if you go on to the um, the next map, this is later during the Renaissance era. As far as all the reading that I've done in these books talking about the collaboration of esoteric Christians and esoteric Jews, the areas in the dark spot or the yellow are these hot spots for it. And I find very little occultism in France, generally speaking, and also Spain in particular once uh, you know, the Inquisition deals with the problems and the Sephardic Jews are expelled. And so a lot of these Sephardic Jews, they go to these particular areas, right? The Ottoman Empire, some end up in Venice. Uh, a lot of them are in the low countries. And some of them will find some influence in Prague. And I don't know how much of that is going to end up influencing Ashkenazi uh, Jews with some of the occultism. But these are the areas where when I'm going through these books, these are they, they crop up most often. Um, and then, as far as I understand, you have some battling back and forth with France and Spain over political or economic matters or whatever. But it doesn't seem as much of an issue in terms of heresy uh, as as far as I can tell with all of this occultism. Um, so it's interesting. Interesting. A few centuries later, this, uh, you know, that that original Polishians map, at least France, and then when it spread into Spain, they took care of that Gnostic heresy, whereas these other areas are going to start spreading this occultism kind of like wildfire, and this is all during the Renaissance, and a lot of this will lead to the Protestant reaction, and then later on, you know, masonry evolving out of the dissenters in particular uh, England. So that concludes the map recap or foreshadowing here. All right. Um, okay, so I guess I'll begin going through some of the notes here, and I have some books that I can 
kind of pull out and show that we're sourced from and maybe read a few passages. Um, so first I wanted to just talk a little bit about Petrarch uh, and coining the uh, Avignon papacy, the Babylonian captivity in the dark ages. It's interesting that he's kind of seen also as an OG source of Renaissance humanism. So he was this again, this is during the, the 14th century. Um, so this guy, there's a really good JSTOR article um, on him basically being the main source of the idea of the dark ages, the middle era where nothing really important happens, right? Um, so <clears throat> he is, uh, I guess he was educated in France, but kind of rebelled against it. And he starts getting kind of nationalistic in terms of like the Latin culture, but the ancient Roman culture uh, in all these, the, the, the literature. And again, it's kind of similar to the founding fathers where they want to go back to that like Augustan age or period, the golden age, which was a better version of pagan Rome. But he's also saying that that's kind of like he's he's appealing to christianity to go to that right and that the franks are like these evil barbarians he calls them roosters and they squawk and stuff like that so a lot of a lot of funny insults are coming out during this time uh particularly from some of the more zealous italians and i think boniface the eighth i believe who wasn't really liked a lot and kind of quarreled he had some things to say he i think he said he'd rather be a a dog than a Frenchman and dogs have no souls or something like that. So <laughs> some colorful insults are going back and forth here. But um, anyway, so he Petrarch is kind of influenced by these Franciscan spirituals. Right. Um, and that's a problem, we would say at this point. Uh, and he's also kind of favorable to Germanic interests. Um, and it is also like coming out of like the Guelph Ghibelline battle. And as far as I understand, the Guelphs were like more like uh, kind of liberal, economically motivated. And the Ghibellines were more like nobility based upon conservative farmers and laborers, things like that. Um, and so they're all kind of battling over uh, the residual, you know, that battle is kind of pouring over here as far as what I was reading. And so, Basically, the interesting thing is this guy, he wants to go back to pagan Roman republics where everything was amazing. And he's railing against monarchs and popes and wealth and greed. And that's usually what's associated with paganism, right? And so he wants us to go back to all of these, you know, Roman Republic figures in literature. That's his solution. Um, so, like we talked about, we had the Philip IV roundup of the Templars, that whole debacle, what's going on there. And then uh, during the Clement V Avignon papacy, I was reading this book on Clement V. Um, again, I think I mentioned the last show, Sophia Minash. I don't know. I'm reading through it. I, the guy seemed pretty well balanced. He had a lot to deal with. He was doing lots of, he, he was dealing with all those heresies, the spiritual Franciscans. He's, he's dealing with all kinds of stuff. And he's just trying to keep the peace it seems so i don't understand why people are bashing him or it also just didn't seem like he's a tool of the french king the book kind of says that that's kind of a myth um but there obviously was a controversy going on there so i i think that i'd like to look into this period more it's it's a lot more complex and i think that modern history does that black and white almost like a avignon legend in some regard 
even if there are some problems that are legitimate, right? Considering what's going on in all these other areas, you got Mr. Petrarch, who's bringing about Freemasonry seemingly, you know, in this primitive form. We're, we're going to call that guy better. You know what I mean? So I don't know. You can make up your own mind about it. But um, anyway, so there was this. Uh, and, and, OK, here's the interesting thing. I found in this book, it's called The Virgin of Guadalupe in the Conversos by Maria Teresa Hernandez. There's an interesting document that was uncovered, apparently, um, about the Avignon Papacy in 1326, that uh, they had a particular association with the Guadalupe Shrine. Uh, quickly, I'll just read page 26. Uh, Peter Linehan, a scholar, located a remarkable letter that indicates the supreme importance of the Guadalupe Shrine as early as 1326. The letter was signed at Avignon by two patriarchs, two archbishops, 15 bishops, and was designed to encourage the faithful to visit the Guadalupe Sanctuary. So there was this early primitive devotion to Guadalupe before they even knew that it was that big of a deal. And the Avignon Papacy, the whole hierarchy is kind of making it a big deal, right? So they're saying that this is kind of unprecedented to see such a stir in the papacy having all these high ups signing off on this and encouraging this. Um, and after this, they don't find much in the records about this. So this was kind of like a, a secret find of, of recent scholarship, I guess. And that really sets the tone for a lot of the stuff that we're going to go through in regards to this. Um, and last thing I mentioned, uh, this was kind of set the tone as well. This book, In the Wake of the Plague by Norman Cantor, he's a Jewish historian. I don't, I think he died a decade or so ago, a couple, I don't know, but uh, I think he died in the 2000s. But anyway, so, you know, Jewish historian, he's certainly not going to be kind to the uh, Catholic empire here, but nonetheless, I think he has some interesting things to say in this book. One of them, again, he's talking about Occam and Louis IV of Bavaria uh, attacking the papacy of Avignon. Uh, and he talks about this intellectual movement that began in the 1240s by these Franciscans, but these are more the spiritual ones. So they're all, you know, on that camp and they're going to, again, set up their uh, Oxford battles against Aquinas scholasticism and kind of like the French-Italian alliance on that. Um, and then here's an interesting quote I think will really be relevant to all the Spanish Inquisition Alumbrado stuff. On page 151, he says, The rabbinical and capitalist elite in Jewish communities, about 5% of the Jewish families, had further come to abandon the Aristotelian rationalism of Maimonides and instead embraced an esoteric theosophy called Kabbalah, which, surprise, surprise, originated in the Hellenistic Eastern Mediterranean during the first century AD. So going back to our very first episode, right? Or our second episode, I guess. Um, the Kabbalah intensified its mystical and astrological contents over time. Ordinary Jews were excluded from the study of it. And these rabbinical families intermarried into the mercantile and banking elite that were given access to it. Um, and then they said down here, there was no doubt a doctrinal overlap between the Kabbalah and the dualist Cathar heresy in southern France. Um, and then the last thing I'd mention on this, this part, um, 
it's interesting that that apparently I think this guy was like an anti-communist Jewish guy. So it seems interesting that he's siding with Roger Bacon, one of these spiritual Franciscans and all of these Oxford people are tied to the spiritual Franciscans who, as we were finding out, maybe led to the development of modern Marxism and communism. So that's kind of an error in Logos here, right? You're siding with the communists or the, de- the early people who are developing it, even though later on in life, he's, I guess, anti-communist. So that's kind of a problem, right? That's just a fundamental contradiction, it would seem. Obviously, he doesn't know all these things, but that's what we're trying to show here. He even mentions that the uh, Joachim of Fiore cult possibly had an overlap with Jewish mystical Kabbalah and their apocalyptic visions. And in the Zohar, you have a lot of things tied to uh, millennialism and the Shekinah, this like feminine spirit in exile, right? And this goes back to the uh, Sophia in exile of the early Gnostics, like we talked about in the Alexandria episode. So, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. One more, one more gem. One more gem he has. Yeah, go ahead. Um, he talks about how the uh, French Third Republic, which was super anti-clerical, uh, they used the Avignon uh, Palace of the Popes as a horse stable. And apparently this was an insult where you let your animals, you know, that that's their area where they're, you know, going to the bathroom, basically. So it was basically an insult. So if the, the French anti-clerical Satanic Republic has a problem with Avignon once desecrated, apparently Cromwell did the same thing to the Anglican Church. That's what he says in here. So, you know, despite the Avignon papacy, it seems like Satan still doesn't like it after all these years. Yeah, great points. Very important to remember that God is still working. I wanted to just point out uh, again, as we move into the more greater Renaissance period going into the Protestant revolt, God raised up great saints during this period to address the situation, Um, particularly uh, two great uh, nun saints, St. Catherine of Siena and St. Bridget of Sweden, great mystics, true mystics, who are, are calling on the Pope to move back to Rome and uh, restore the order of Christendom. Because as you're, as you're pointing out, Michael, there's this rise in nationalism. And part of this is just a, a purely natural thing because we have the development of vernacular culture. So Dante writes the Divine Comedy in Italian around 1300. So there's just this development of, of the vernacular culture, which is already what happened in Ireland centuries ago at this point. They're just developing the vernacular culture. So there's a rise in national national feeling, but then it gets twisted by the devil in this period. Uh, one of my favorite saints, which is tragically unknown during this period is St. Vincent Ferrer. And he leads a great movement of repentance. He's converting thousands of Jews and Mohammedans. He's working... Great miracles. He's raising the dead. He speaks in tongues. He he will he will preach, and it will be translated into all the languages automatically, and everyone understands him. So it's a great saint, and he's the one who tries. He helps to uh, resolve the situation when there's eventually three popes from 1378 to 1417, um, and he actually believes in the anti-pope, but because the anti-pope refuses to play along with the reconciliation. St. Vincent calls on everyone to basically renounce obedience to the person he believes is the true Pope. 
and give it to the Council of Constance. But this also leads to the conciliar controversy. So that basically there's all these controversies that are not totally resolved in the 1400s. By the time we get to the 1500s, there's been such deep corruption, especially in Rome. So the Pope has got back to Rome, but there's so much corruption in Rome. They are so obsessed with the Renaissance at this time. I, I recently read an example of how obsessed they really were when in the court of Leo X, oh no, I'm, I think it was Paul III. I'm sorry if I'm, if I'm getting the wrong Pope, but it's early 1500s. But at the papal court on Good Friday, they preached a sermon on the sacrifice of Agamemnon's sacrificial offering to Artemis and how great that was. They did that on Good Friday. Just think about that. This is this is basically there were just I mean, we, we have a problem right now with when, you know, Pope Francis talking about the U.N. That's that was the problem then. It's it's a very similar problem because they're just they're so obsessed with what's going on, what's happening now and the trending trends that that's that's the type of corruption that was going on. And the pope was leading armies to try to capture other territory for himself. It was great corruption. So this is kind of the second pornocracy era, which eventually breaks out in the present revolt. So here's the that's the macro view. Uh, so what is going on with the occult during this period? Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Alambrados and the Inquisition. Then we're going to get back to the Guadalupe uh, gem, hidden gem, because I think that that relates to everything going on now. Because maybe the Avignon papacy and that Guadalupe devotion was kind of like a light in the darkness. Um, but we're going to find an interesting infiltration of Guadalupe uh, before 1492 and the golden age of new world exploration. And I think that will tie in nicely with everything you talked about with the, that gentleman, Mr. Luis, is that, was that his name? Oh, Luis I'm Medina. Old. Yes. The, um, yeah. Spanish history. Uh, yes. I think that will really tie in nicely with everything you guys discussed there. Um, and I know you discussed the inquisition, but I'm just going to talk more about the esoteric parts of it. Um, so the good book I like is the Spanish inquisition by Henry Kamen. Um, and I'm just going to read a couple quick passages that I think are relevant from page pages 86 through 91. Um, he talks about here the uh, spiritual Franciscan school, surprise, surprise, uh, in particular, a Francisco de Osuna, one of these spiritual friars, um, this is influencing these Alambrados. It says, out of this mystical school, there grew up a vision, or excuse me, a version, emphasizing the passive union of the soul with God. These adepts were called Alambrados, the mystical movement searching for a pure interior religion, an inner gnosis, you know, subjective, right? Um, that was a common coin in Europe during this time. And in Spain, there was powerful patronage of these mystics of the great nobility. So like you said, there are actual mystics and then there's these Alambrado mystics. And I think really the best way to tell the difference is if they bypass the commandments. <laughs> that's really, I think, the easiest way, right? I mean, that's <laughs> it's, it's actually rather simple despite all these complexities. And that will get into like later on with John D weirdness. Um, so... And ironically, the other thing I think is telling is they'll always talk about how spiritual everything is and how greedy, you know, the Catholic Church is. 
But when they get some power, they end up becoming incredibly worldly. And that will be re re really relative to this Guadalupe monastery we'll talk about in a second. Um, and then here's the other interesting thing. The biggest time of the, the Inquisition here was like late, late 1400s into early 1500s and leading to the rise of the Jesuits in terms of dealing with the Alambrado issue in particular. Um, and it says that the mingling of mystical Erasmian and heretical influences made the late 1520s a unique period for freedom and both tension. The Inquisitors are connecting this stuff to Lutheranism, so it's right around that time, Luther's revolt, um, locating him in some of the views of these Alambrados, so there's a Lutheran strain at times, it would seem. Um, but the point is here, says that the fact that nearly every person implicated in these groups of these years was a converso. So that's what's so unique about this period of the Inquisition and the Alambrado strain. It was coming from the converso. So any of the Alambrados, you know, it was going to be tied to uh, the Jews that had converted to Catholicism. Uh, and just, just a quick note, just a quick note for viewers, the expulsion of the Jews has has been going on in Christendom like we talked about since Alexandria in the 400s because there's the left-wing Jews and the more civil Jews of course but the left-wing Jews are causing so many problems that they're being expelled so the conversos happened when Spain ultimately felt forced at least we can debate about whether or not it was a good decision for the particular time but they did it they they expelled the Jews because of these left-wing Jews and some Jews decided to stay and they became conversos, which means they, they were baptized. They became baptized. They were Catholics. And then some of them held on to some of their beliefs and wanted to cause these issues. Yes. And here, this, this actually kind of highlights this. Many conversos, indeed, were ironically condemned for beliefs that Orthodox Judaism would have regarded as heretical. There you go. <laughs> such as denying the immortality of the soul. Spiritual descent among the conversos did not, therefore, necessarily imply any drift towards Judaism. There was nothing remotely Jewish about the beliefs of the Alambrados. The root influence was Franciscan spirituality. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty funny. What, what page is that one on? Uh, 88. That's, that's There's a great, different versions great money of this quote book. there. Yeah. This is the this is the historical revision version. I think things have been updated. And it's interesting that some of these passages I noticed have been revised. So I don't know why they're revising these. Um, but I think that that's very important. Um, and sometimes there was some patronage of the nobility for these uh, Franciscan Alambrado types, which is similar to the Cathars, right? The aristocracy that was protecting them, but they weren't necessarily Cathars. We talked about that being a big problem. So we don't want a Cathars 2.0 happening. So is that understandable as to maybe some of the motivations for the Inquisition, despite people taking advantage of that in bad and uh, unfair ways that did happen? And I think the book does a good job of balancing these things out. Um, now, uh, I just wanted to, from pages 15 through 17, there's a couple of things I want to summarize here. I think just interesting uh, facts that he was demonstrating. Uh, he came and says that mass conversions of the Jews to, to Christianity depleted the communities in the late 14th century. 
So there were a lot of Jews converting to Christianity and there weren't problems during that time. Um, so this actually reduced a lot of the, the population. Um, and this was a huge reduction of the Jewish population by 1492. So a whole bunch had converted. Um, there were some areas where there were a quarter of the Jews left of their communities because they were now Christians. So obviously there's a lot of Jews converting to Christianity that aren't having problems because the Inquisition, despite the controversies, I think it's like 3,000 people were executed over the span of like a couple hundred years. It's like 12 people per year, right? So if you have this massive Jewish population converting, and even if the Inquisition's a problem, there should be way more people in the inquisitional numbers if like there was just this big problem of them converting all uh, holistically right so i think that that shows the effectiveness of them converting but there were some problems uh when they started converting um now here's the interesting thing the book also tells you that in the early 15th century rabbis the, the rabbinical literature was saying that most of these people who converted they didn't want to convert they were just kind of forced into it right but then within like a, a half century, they changed their tune. And now they're starting to say all these conversions are sincere. So even the rabbis are kind of like, they're, they're trying to figure it out for themselves what's going on here. Um, and so here's the twofold issue that arises out of this, according to the book. Uh, the Jews became Christians. Sometimes they get hostile towards the Jewish communities they came from. So this could, could be like, if somebody's a vegan and then they become an ex-vegan. Sometimes they go on an anti-vegan crusade or vice versa. Or, you know, that just it's kind of happens, right? What you convert from and what you think you saw the problems in, now you become a crusader against it without realizing the mindset that you were just in that mindset you know, a couple of years ago. And now you hate all the people in that mindset. So there can be kind of like a temptation to do that, right? So there, there's that aspect. But on the other side, there are also Jews that got mad at conversos and denounced them to the Inquisition for personal vengeance. So they were bearing false witness against these conversos because they had some sort of beef with them. And that became a big problem. And there was actually some people caught in admitting that they were lying just out of personal enmity or spite as why they were denouncing them. So some of the Jews were using the Inquisition to their advantage to get personal vengeance. So these are kind of like the untold stories that show there's a lot more complexity to the situation. Um, and then there was kind of like a soft expulsion that says in 1482 uh, to separate the new Christians from the Jews. But because of these issues, it wasn't that the Christians had a problem with the Jews in their communities. But when they were converting, you know, and you, you can also look at it from the Catholic perspective. If Satan doesn't want people con converting to Catholicism from any denomination, he's going to start prodding people when he sees a lot of these conversions happening. And then bad stuff happens on both sides. You have old Christians who start getting pharisaical. And, uh, you know, that leads to the problem of, you know, from the Catholic side, being paranoid of crypto infiltration to a, a degree that's, you know, completely overblown. And on the flip side, you know, you have the other paranoia where it's like conversion becomes a genocide, right? Let that becomes kind of like how they view some of these things. Um, and especially if they lost a lot of their population, you can understand why they would think that way. But the question, in my opinion, would be, how much is the Kambala spreading here? Um, and I think that that's really interesting if we go to some of the Jewish sources on this. So before, while I find the notes, I don't know if you wanted to respond with anything there. Oh, sure. Yeah, let me, uh, I just wanted to point out that the 
So these mass conversions, a lot of them, St. Vincent Ferrer, I think he dies in around 1410, if I recall, or 1420. It's right after the Council of Constance. Um, but they basically show that there certainly there is anti-logos in the Talmud. Of course, there is the Zohar especially, but also the anti-Christian, anti-Jesus, uh, whether the curses against Jewish Christians or different things that are in the Talmudic rite, in the Pharisaic rite. So there's, there's an anti-logos strong tradition. But what's interesting is that the Mohammedans, the Sunni Mohammedans, not the Shia, but the Sunni Mohammedans who are the dominant, they completely re repudiate and reject logos. They reject Aristotle completely. So when you have a, de a public debate with a Mohammedan, uh, especially if he's from a Mohammedan country, it becomes a shouting match. And it's not a rational debate because there is, you know, Mohammedans have, Sunni Mohammedans especially, they have this voluntarism against Logos, which is so strong that they will just instantly riot as their, their main uh, sort of defense mechanism. But there is in, still in the Jews, because they still have the Old Testament, which is pure Logos, of course, um, there's still this strong logos among the Jews despite these these uh, wicked elements because of the rabbis, because of the Sohar and these things like that, um, because they do have a rational debate. And this is what a lot of these mass conversions are happening because the Spanish authorities see, think the best way is to, they, they don't force the Jews to be baptized. They force them to listen to a debate. They just say, okay, you're forced to go listen to a debate. We're, we're going to give you freedom from there, but we, we, we want you to go look at this debate. So whether or not that was legitimate to force them to do that. That's what they did. But then when they heard the debates between a rabbi and a Dominican or a rabbi and a converted Jews, they were converted because they were given the gospel. And as St. Paul did through all the synagogues in the Roman empire, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He reasoned with them. He used logos. He used the scriptures and reasoned with them. So there is a, still a strong logos present among the Jews. Otherwise they wouldn't convert with debate. Exactly. And I think that that leads to this next part, because when you get into a lot of this mysticism and leads to more of the, you know, what, what becomes later on, right, the, the problem with the, the Gnostic sources tied to like the rejection of the God of Israel and Marxism, like when you debate an SJW, I don't care what their ethnic or religious background, they're just an SJW, right? Oftentimes they don't listen to reason and they just still want to attack you. And this is kind of similar to what was happening with the Cathars, right? Um, some of the Cathars tried to kill the Dominicans who were trying to reason with them. And you actually find this with particular inquisitors. There's like, there's like a few examples they show. I forget the, the areas. They're, they're not like this wasn't happening, I don't think all over the place, but there were some where the, the inquisitors were coming and they, a lot of these inquisitors were trying to understand the situation of the people they were dealing with. Some of them were probably less good intention, but, you know, some of these inquisitors were, were murdered and like, just, it's like they didn't want to hear it. And so you have to take with any of this stuff, you have to look at every single specific example or conflict in any area. And then you have to figure out what's going on. Sometimes you find greater patterns, but sometimes there's anomalies and you can't paint it with a broad brush. So that's why I've tried to look in and be distinct about the particular areas you're talking about. But I, what I think is really interesting is a book, The History of the Jewish People by Ben Sasson, or that's the organization or, or I don't know, compiler. It's a Hebrew university history. It's very big. <laughs> 
I got it for like five bucks at the thrift store. Um, so chapter 41 talks about the transition to the Kabbalah. And it's interesting because like you were talking about the Talmud, here's another in, uh, a problem. If the Talmud is this like collection of debates and all these, like all the, the things that the Jews have brought together over the years, how do you discern what should be in there and what's not, right? It's almost like you can kind of pick which rabbi to follow. And you can probably pick the ones that have more reason, but you can probably pick some other ones that are a, a bit more extreme, right? So that becomes a problem. And it's similar to Protestantism, right? It's like you have all these different Protestant factions that battle within each other about what is a Protestant, right? And I, I, to me, this day, it's like, I can't really define what a Protestant is. And, and then it's like, sometimes Protestants don't want to be defined as Protestants. They're like, well, I'm just a Christian, right? So as things get more subjective over time, it just becomes harder and harder to put a definition on things. You know what I mean? And I think that that is like a conundrum because now you have Jews who will say that, you know, Judaism is synonymous with like LGBT movement, right? If you're anti-LGBT, you're anti-Semitic. Well, that doesn't make any sense. I don't think it's kosher to be pro-LGBT in Judaism, but there's movements that try to do that, right? And so when the more subjective it gets, people just appeal to things that's convenient. And so this is the difference, I think, with them with Catholicism, where you have a stamp of dogma that says, okay, you got this, and that solves a lot of problems. And so I think what's happening here is you have these controversies going on in Catholicism, but they're also going on in Judaism. So you have Judaism is trying to merge and mix. What, what's the what's the fine line between mysticism and, and reason, right? Faith and reason. Um, so in this section, it talks about some rabbis viewed the Inquisition as a punishment from God because Jews wanted to obliterate, the, obliterate their Judaism by conversion. And so therefore, they deserved it. That's a rabbi's opinion. Uh, they're giving you all the different opinions of rabbis. So, okay, um, that's pretty extreme. But then in the next side, next page, there are some Jews that viewed uh, Protestantism as a result of Marano's, that's a derogatory, you know, uh, conversos. They say it here. Um, and that the, the Catholics were the ones who were in the wrong. And so the Jews helped the Protestants revolt against Catholicism because Catholics are evil. So the Protestant revolt conflated with Judaism is like a righteous thing. That's the opinion here. So those are two very different opinions, right? You got one saying that the Jews who are rejecting the Torah, they, they are converting to Catholicism because they want to eliminate their own Judaism. And then the Inquisition was a punishment. That's a Jewish rabbi's opinion. And then you have another set of Jews who are saying that the Catholics are the evil ones and the Jews rebelling with Protestants against Catholicism is the tyranny. So those are like complete opposite. But those are two Jewish opinions, right? So that's the conflict. How do you harmonize which one is right? Whichever side you might feel more disposed towards, you might pick. You know what I mean? So that that to me shows the problem. And then out of this, it says how this brought about a lot of problems when the Sephardic scholars went to the Ashkenazi territory. And they start saying that the Ashkenazi scholars are ignorant and backwards and not super smart, basically. Um, but is this an overlap of Kabbalah and masonry and, and Gnosis, right? Oh, your Gnosis is what defines how holy you are, right? So 
is this where the Ashkenazi are maybe tied a little bit more towards conservative Judaism and then the Sephardic scholars are getting in fights with them? Um, that seems to be uh, consistent, in my opinion. So it starts talking about the, the Jewish mystical structure. It's, it's forming. Isaac Luria comes out of this. And uh, it says here that the structure of Jewish mystical thought began to rise again during this time of the Spanish Jewry. And the Kabbalah, as the mystic doctrine became called, uh, showed signs of creativity before the expulsion. Um, and it says following the expulsion, this doctrine began to spread far and wide. So it's interesting that if there were Jews that were expelled and they started spreading Kabbalah, it would show you that maybe a lot of the Jews that were being expelled were tied to this Illuminism, because why would it spread far and wide after the expulsion to these areas? And then they start getting in fights with Ashkenazi, right? Does that, that's, that has a pretty consistent logic to it, right? Um, so before I move on, I don't know if you want to respond. Oh yeah, sure. Sure. Please continue. Yeah. I, I just realized we have to, uh, have to get through a few things still. Um, Anyway, so anyway, this develops into the Kabbalah, the Ein Sof, the idea of the Shekinah, the feminine spirit in exile. This kind of goes back to Gnosticism, right? Sophia in exile and the diaspora and stuff like that. So it's really bringing in all this Gnostic stuff and the Zohar is developing. Um, so that's what they say. It, it, most of it came from a lot of these Sephardic ideas um, as, in a nutshell. So. Let's move on to the Guadalupe stuff. I think this is really interesting. Um, so this book here, um, wherever I put it, oh, here it is. The Virgin of Guadalupe and the Conversos. Um, what ends up happening here is like the spiritual Franciscan or the Franciscan order, right? That rises and then there seems to be an infiltration effort and then that gets purged out by Bonaventure. That's going to happen later with the Jesuits as well, as we're going to find with a lot of these conversos. Um, but here we have the Geronimite order of St. Jerome. Um, the Avignon papacy, the last one, Gregory the Ninth, I believe, he recognizes this order. And so what happens is this order gets to take care of the Guadalupe shrine that we were talking about earlier. And Apparently, there were some monks around this shrine that were poor and maybe tied to these beggars in, in Dutch and the lowlands countries. That there, it, it says there's, there seems to be an overlap here. Um, and this is interesting because they were seen as, as poor. And some of the Avignon popes, even though they thought they were kind of heretical, they said, you know, don't persecute them too much. They're maybe a little ignorant of theology, stuff like that. So... They were living in uh, poverty, I guess. So it says there's a connection here. Um, and this ties into the spiritual Franciscans once again. And the Albigenses, it says here. Uh, this is all in chapter uh, two in this book. So anyways, um, what ends up happening is uh, the Spanish monarchy and I guess Portugal too, they invest in the Guadalupe shrine because the papacy's you know, they're all deeming it to be special. Um, so they start giving it support uh, and they want to get, uh, you know, give it uh, an overhaul. So they put the Geronimite order in charge of it. 
Um, but the problem is there seems to be a spiritual Franciscan overlap here going on. And uh, it's pretty interesting that um, we got in, in 1389 through 1391, there was a pogrom where some of these Jews were escaping. And then I guess there was some conversa overlap with it. Some of them come into the monastery. Um, I guess somebody paid like a hundred thousand, whatever the currency was there to get one of them in there to be protected. Um, and so what ends up happening is the book is talking about how there's like a little bit of a, a luminous influence here from the people who are already there, the spiritual Franciscans tied to those lowland uh, beggars, and then some of these alumbrados. So it's, it's a mixture of quote unquote Jews and Gentiles. We'll put it that way. Um, and again, this is at Guadalupe, which has been deemed important by the papacy. So is this kind of Satan's fusion, like in early Alexandrian times, to get the Christians and Jewish culture, the Greek or Jewish culture to work together, if you will, uh, to perform an objective, right? That they want to mess with this Guadalupe mon monastery. So what happens is the Spanish crown funds it during this time, and then the Geronimites get dominion over it. And so they get a lot of perks and there's even a donation system i guess set up to just keep giving them money um and so it's interesting the book says that this order here they ran it like a democracy where everybody got a vote and they had a new new leader every four years <laughs> does that sound familiar <laughs> um and they also started developing this form of what it calls pre-modern capitalism and it becomes one of the richest monasteries in all of Europe. And apparently they were known for their medicines and curing syphilis. So I don't know why you need cures for syphilis at monasteries that are supposed to be, you know, uh, refraining from such practices that bring about STDs. Um, but apparently people were looking for syphilis cures. They could go there and, and find them. Uh, that's what it says. Um and it says it became known as one of the first banking establishments in Europe. And uh, they started building hospitals and stuff like that and lodging. Now, here's what's really interesting. Um, they're talking about an Alambrado influence and overlap here. And um, then no one expects the Spanish Inquisition to come when you're doing all this, <laughs> apparently. Uh, because in... 1481 that's when the inquisition started you know cracking down on things so they come to this the, the town of guadalupe and then they find a lot of heresies are happening um now it says here this this town of guadalupe was exclusively controlled by the order of saint jerome so the monastery is in charge of the town right so a lot of these villagers are being arrested on heresy charges some are recanting, some are exiled, some are in prison, some are executed. And here's the interesting thing. The, the money that they took from confiscating from the village, they gave to the monastery. So that shows you they have no idea what's going on in the monastery, right? They think the villagers are the heretics. So some of these villagers start saying, you should investigate the monastery. Um, and so what they do is they, they take the, the money from this inquisitional purge 
they build a, a real estate for the, the royal house onto the monastery. Maybe they wanted to keep tabs on it. The book tries to indicate that they were greedy and wanted to build a super nice palace for themselves. But maybe they knew stuff was going on. So maybe they wanted to be able to have a residence to come and check in. I don't know. But nonetheless, once they start investigating the monastery, well, that's when they start finding interesting figures like a Diego de Marchena. And I'll read you the uh, records and what they say about him. There are particular statements from other friars about Marchena. He is a very vindictive man, extremely annoying, never wants to recognize his faults. He has a reputation not being a good man. I hear the majority of the brothers speak badly of him. He travels outside the monastery frequently, as far as Gibraltar. He's known for gathering donations for synagogues and Jewish captives. He was outspoken and argumentative. Remember, this is just one guy we're talking about. Uh, he's he's not even a baptized catholic but he's conducting masses and giving communions as if he were an ordained priest his fellow friars thinks he has friends in high places he was getting money from queen isabel by he was appealing to queen isabel to get money to go rescue friends who were captured by the turks but apparently they were jews trying to escape and practice judaism in north africa he left that part out it seems um and he's encouraging people to practice Judaism and he's gathering money for the synagogues. But again, is this for the Kabbalah version of Judaism? And people just think that's, that's what Judaism is. Cause again, this is a small village. Do people know all these things? There's no internet, right? You don't know. And if the Jews are excluded to their communities, you don't know a lot of, you know, if you're just a regular person, you don't know what the actual, you know, uh, Torah observant Jews are teaching, but then you see all the Kabbalah tied to them. It's just a natural association, right? Um, and so what's what happens is this guy, uh, he ends up being executed. They kind of allude here that he was unfairly executed. But again, this book is not going to be favorable to Catholicism. Um, and this culminated in an auto de fe in 1485. And then, interestingly enough, within 10 years, now that it's had this purgatorial fire, if you will, that's when Columbus makes a devotion to Guadalupe. Cortez makes a devotion at this Guadalupe shrine. Uh, it, you know, it's it gets taken over by the crown and there's no more heresies going on here. And that's where you get all the New World expansion. So isn't it interesting, kind of like the birds of a feather thing here? We have these beggared Franciscan spirituals that are taking over this monastery. And then you have these Alambrados showing up there and they're kind of have a fusion together. And then later on that gets purged. And then you have these new world explorers that are trying to go out and start the golden age of Catholicism. So I think that's an interesting timeline. I don't know about you. Oh yeah, definitely. I, I love this story as an American. I love the story of Aleti Guadalupe, which connects our, um, Lady of Guadalupe Extremadura in Spain. And all of this also, this site is united and continuing to unite the Spanish conquistadores through, or not conquistadores, the reconquistadores, uh, the, the crusaders um, getting Spain back. So uh, definitely a, a great period when God is uh, providentially taking care of business while the Protestants are revolting. So um, we've got about a half hour left, Michael. Do you want to, what do you want to cover? We got a few things to go over. Yeah. Let me go through the Jesuits and some of the weird, uh, uh, black legend stuff that's tied to alchemy. 
um, because I think it's all relative. And then if we have to do the other episode to cover the other things, I can probably transition that into a later period with some of the other stuff uh, for short on time. Um, okay, so the Jesuits, there's a good book called The Jesuit Order as a Synagogue of Jews by Alexander Merricks. He's a Boston College professor. He does a lot of studies on the Jesuits. Um, you can actually read this book for free. It's a Brill book that's available on PDF download. I'll put the link in. Um, so what's interesting about this book is it talks about a controversy among the Jesuits, which are forming, you know, out of this period, right? So after the 1520s, there's like the culmination of all of this. Uh, it seems like, you know, the, the, the issue is more or less dealt with. Um, and actually, there is a, a graph I'm going to show here real quick. Uh, I just, I'll share my screen for this one thing. Um, okay. Do you see this? Yep, I got it. Okay. So on this shows like the, the different types of people being persecuted by the Inquisition. So right here from 1483 to 1530, this is uh, in Toledo. So this is just like a sample. If you look, that right there, that long, big bar, those are the quote-unquote Judaizers. But could we say that maybe it's more like the Alumbradoizers, <laughs> right? Um, and then in these other periods after that, you don't nearly see the height of that, right? And over here, nothing caps off beyond that. And then one of them is just uh, a basic, you know, people making blasphemous statements. So that just shows you there's disproportionate thing going on during that time period, if you will. Sure. Um, and so if I bring it back to the non share screen. Um, yeah, so perhaps there's an issue that overlaps into the Jesuits here, which I think is interesting. Um, so Ignatius of Loyola is a controversial figure, right? I've heard all kinds of accusations against him from all different spectrums that are so opposite each other. It just, you know, what's going on, right? Some people accuse Ignatius of Loyola of being a crypto illuminist who started the Bavarian Illuminati or something, right? That the, Apparently, he was an illuminist who led to the Illuminati. That's kind of like one hostile, you know, Protestant conspiracy theory, if you will. But then on the other side, you have like Jack Chick comics that will say he started the Inquisition that was directly designed to destroy Jews. So he's either a crypto Jew, according to one side, or he's killing Jews like a Nazi. Those are two very different things. So, you know what I mean? Like this is this is the kind of craziness that you get accused of different people. So what's up with Loyola? And if you read this book, it's really interesting. You can see why he's a saint. He has a balanced approach here where he's actually hanging out with a lot of Alambrados and Conversos. And it's just like Christ sitting with the sinners and he's allowing them into the Jesuits. But there are some issues. He does have some concerns and he says that they should be more, quote, circumspect with them when some people started worrying about that. Um, also, in his constitutions towards the end of his life, there was a battle that started to rage where people were accusing an, an Alambrado infiltration in the Jesuits. And you could tell that he was really kind of 
like stricken by that. He was debating what he should do about it. So what he did was he put a question on the, the entry form to the Jesuits that you would have to identify if you had conversal lineage. Um, but it wasn't an impediment. It was just a question because I think he saw there was some controversy arising, it would seem. Um, so what happens is, and the other interesting thing is Loyola was rounded up by the Inquisition a few times himself. And I've, in fact, one of the guys who denounced him, think back to some of the problems we mentioned earlier. One of the guys who denounced him, I think his last name was Ortiz. He had a brother who was a spiritual Franciscan who got looked at by the Inquisition. So his brother was, he was defending his brother who was being looked at, but he was tied to maybe some of this Illuminism of the Franciscan order. But this is the guy that denounces Loyola to the Inquisition. So that seems kind of strange. Now, he could be just conflating some of the mystic stuff because it's easy to do, right? You look at some mystical material just on its own, you could easily jump to that conclusion. You have to go through and, and deliberate it carefully. But apparently Ignatius Loyola befriended him later and he stopped attacking him. So, you know, this just shows that Loyola is able to cut through these prejudices, uh, or at least I think that that's the, the better way of looking at it. Um, and so what happens is after Loyola dies, there's this controversy that arises similar to the Franciscan controversy. There's the conventionals who are attacking the radicals or the spirituals. And this is what the Pope was trying to get in the middle of and deal with, right? Uh, the, uh, the Avignon Pope that we've been talking about, or a couple of them, the early ones. Um, anyway, so the memorialistas movement arises. Now, this is mostly conversos lending towards humanism. And it seems like more of the liberal progressive time kind. Um, again, uh, that you can probably have varying shades of that within it, but they wanted autonomy from Rome and the Inquisition. They didn't want the Inquisition looking at them. They didn't mind the Inquisition, but they wanted to be in charge of their own Inquisition. Basically, they didn't want to have their own people investigated. So that's a little suspicious, right? Um, and they're seen as, in the book, it says defiant towards their superiors. They were uh, basically rebelling and being disobedient. And the Italian Jesuits were alleging a crypto infiltration conspiracy against them. And so this was part of a war. And this culminated with some of the quote unquote limpieza de sangre or purity of blood restrictions and the memorialistas lose. Now, there's a lot of controversies around that. We'll talk about that in a second. But um, there's an interesting timeline here. Uh, in the beginning of the book, Merrick's outlines that there was no restrictions and concern about a converso Alambrado influence from the beginning of Loyola in 1540 and the Jesuit order. And then in 1593, that's when that restriction came over that said, ipso facto, no conversos. Um, and you can, people can debate that decision or whatever, but it lasted for about 15 years. And then it opened up to allowing anybody to apply to the Jesuits, but for conversos, they could have their lineage checked for up to five generations. And it could be a grounds for dismissal, but it wasn't necessarily that it would happen. So perhaps it's at the balancing point. You realize there's a concern and the infiltration is more along the lines of this Kabbalah stuff. And a lot of the, in my opinion, the problems with the Renaissance humanism kind of leads, leans towards that progressive liberalism but there's also parts of the humanism and the Renaissance that are totally Catholic and awesome that I think gets conflated as well. And so that's why this is such a delicate issue. So 
it's interesting that in 1946, they removed the restrictions altogether. Yeah, that's interesting. And it's also a time at the same time where they're spreading the the curse of, of ham, uh, which is a myth invented by uh, Mohammedans to justify their slave trade, which is all about the, the Africans are cursed. So that's why they bled black skin. That's why we can enslave them, that idea. So this is, there is this blood issue going around at that time. So get, that then gets mixed also with these good intentions as well. So uh, all the complexities. That's a great transition. I think that that will we can wrap up with this part. Um, so there's some really good books on wasp racism tied to the black legend. And it's not it, there's a lot of these things going around. Uh, but there's this book here. It's called Rereading the Black Legend. Greer. Uh, Quilligan and Mignolo. Um, and again, this is an academic work that is not favorable to Catholicism. Um, but it's interesting that they go into these examples of mostly Britain and Dutch propaganda. There is some French and there's, there's German propaganda, but a better book for that is the Tree of Hate book. Um, for the, the Germanic side, but I'm kind of kind of summarize points from both books here. But in this particular book, it's interesting that the black legend that's being formulated, they, they, <laughs> again, it's just such a contradiction here. Uh, the wasp establishment, particularly again, British and Dutch interests, it would seem they're formulating this idea that Spain's inherent quote unquote backwardsness and their new world cruelty is tied to them being mixed or tainted with more blood or the Africans. And also there's accusations of that against being tainted, quote unquote, with Jewish blood from more of the Germanic propaganda. Now, this is interesting because a lot of the Jews will end up promoting the black legend against Spain. But part of its original formulation was to basically give a racial polemic against Jews. So that's an irony. Also consider the other irony that if this comes from wasp rich white people, isn't it interesting that the SJWs promote the black legend against Spain and they call everything racist, but they're actually promoting something that was developed to degrade Africans into being conflated with Spanish Catholics. <laughs> that's so, a great, that's a money. What, what, uh, Chapter or page on that. That's a great uh... Uh, chapter five. And the subchapter title is called Black Spain on page 94. That's great. And basically, I'll read you a couple passages here. Was this what um, I did just find out that the big black legend for the Spanish Inquisition came out of a Spaniard in 1567, Reginaldus Montanus, who became a Lutheran. And then he wrote just all these lies about the Spanish Inquisition. English yeah, picked I, them up. They printed them everywhere. They loved it. So who was? what year is this that they're inventing this racial slur against Spanish? It says this all culminated during the reign of Philip II. Okay, Philip II. So he's approximately, if I recall my dates, he's approximately 1570 to about 1610 or something like that. So can you imagine Later. somebody tainted like Philip II marrying Mary Tudor? How awful is that, right? Yeah, that that's yeah, right. That's the other then she become there. Bloody Mary, right? Right. Um, so 
basically there's there's a debate of this, this book alleges that the the bi biological views on race started to develop out of the Renaissance era and I I'd agree I think that you see the roots of it here um, and this is part of it so it says that um, this effort was particularly striking for its deliberate misrepresentation of the racialization of difference within Spain although a racism based on physical appearance did exist blacks were singled out for their color and Moors were not reliably identified in this way. And then it goes on to talk about how Spain viewed the difference. They wanted to separate themselves from the Moor culture during this time, which is interesting, but it's it's based upon religious and cultural practices. It says, instead, the Spanish racial hysteria focused on covert cultural and religious practices, so hidden religion, right, and Inquisition stuff. And it was much more ambiguous on the register of blood. Now, you'll, there's an interesting debate here where there's scholars that will say, mostly Spanish Catholic scholars, will say there's a Whig agenda or an Anglo-American agenda to misconstrue the Spaniards' conception of, quote unquote, blood or race or stock and impart a biological determinism on that, whereas they're looking at it culturally, but they're using those words that we would modernize into being associated with that, right? And then... It says, because of the nuances of racial differences in the Iberian Peninsula, they differed remarkably from the English, French, or Dutch accounts of it. So the Northern Europeans are looking at race differently during this time, it would seem, or it starts to develop that way. So is this where you just blame the people you're attacking for everything you're doing yourself? They're developing a racist doctrine to conflate the Spaniards with the Africans more biologically as time goes on, it would seem, according to this book. Where Spain's still looking at it culturally and religiously. And it's interesting that Spain during this time is trying to separate itself from the Moor culture culturally and religiously, while the Wasp establishment is conflating them to attack them. And it even says that the England, it's, it's interesting, they say that England had full knowledge and consent of their will in this situation, because it says England's relations with sub-Saharan Africans and the relations of power, domination, and slavery, they were they knew the difference between them and the Spanish culture, but they made this conflation anyways to attack it. So it wasn't just a ignorant blunder. It was intent, according to this book. Um, and there's other examples from the Tree of Hate book that I think are interesting, where they try to mix... The, the Germanic polemic is trying to mix the Italian culture with the Spanish as being backwards as well, and all that kind of stuff. So... You could see a lot of this stuff developing, and this is where it gets into alchemy, where you see a little overlap here, I think is really interesting. Um, this book by Carl Jung, he, he wrote all kinds of volumes. This is volume 14, and it talks, I mean, basically he goes through and he just gives you the viewpoints of all these alchemists from the Middle Ages all the way up through uh, the 19th century, I guess. And it's interesting because you see this overlap into the occult. Where remember we talked about the black lead of Saturn and that that's what needs to be transmuted into alchemical gold or spiritual Franciscan gold, right? Um, it's interesting that what you're transmuting, they start talk, they start uh, relating to the black Osiris, which is kind of like, you know, Egyptian, you know, uh, darkness, if you will. And this is why, if you ever heard the accusation that the Jesuits Christogram IHS is Isis Horus set. Have you ever heard that? Uh, yeah, it's the Jack Chick thing. I... <laughs> right. 
<laughs> so this is tied up with that because in occultism, this is kind of confusing. I'll try to explain it the best I can. From like Blavatsky's theosophy or whatever, what their viewpoint is, is that the Catholic Church and the Abrahamic God, quote unquote, that's really just a mean pagan deity that these ignorant Israelites mis mistook for their, their God. So the idea is that us Catholics, we worship a pagan God that's just the evil dark Osiris. And we we didn't take the nice pagan God like Osiris or we we worship Aramon instead of Aramatsta or something like that, right? So this is what they do. They project that onto the church. And so the idea of um, this alchemical black Osiris and uh, the... It says it's associated with the Moor. Um, reading the passage, it says the Moor or Ethiopian is the quote unquote black sinful man that's compared to the raven. And this is what you need to get rid of and transmute. And so if we take that occult understanding of everything black and Moor and black Osiris, and you that, that's being conflated with the Catholic Church here. They hate Catholic Spain. And this will also tie into weird stuff, I think, with the Guadalupe. There's this association with the black virgin and in alchemy there's this concept of the black shulamite woman that needs to be transmuted into the pure one but if you just apply that all to the catholic dogmas of mary the catholic church catholic spain uh right everything that we would call a golden age of christendom like scholasticism or new world exploration for spain that's what they call black and lead and you can see it being conflated with the more African culture here. So I know that might be kind of confusing, but my point is that all this racial doctrine got mixed up in the alchemy at some point uh, in terms of how they perceive these things. And it's really interesting that nowadays you just see this coming back where the racial narrative is breaking down because you actually have conservatives that are quote, biologically African-American. So now all of a sudden they have the white consciousness. So then they just changed their criteria, mm. you know, and it's, it's just, it's really bizarre, like the, the whole flip-flopping. So the whole point is, in my opinion, the Catholic viewpoint is you need to have objective standards. You can't just keep flip-flopping standards to suit your own agenda. And so when you actually put an objective set of standards on all of these issues going on, you see just how much all these regimes who are attacking the Catholic Church flip-flop their standards. And the only the only coherent explanation I can find is that they just hate Roman Catholicism. That's my opinion. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, This is what I, I definitely believe. There's just the, the conspiracy of fallen angels. And all they want to do is just impose their will on the truth. So it doesn't really matter what they rationalize it with. They can rationalize it with blue or they can say green or they can say not green or not green. It doesn't matter as long as they can impose their will on the truth and get their own way. That's the point. Exactly. And I think the last thing I would say is that the ironic thing is that these were the nations that really didn't care about biological race. You have this the Spanish that intermarry with you know, Indians or, or, you know, th this is part of that culture and, and new world exploration. So it's really just anti-racist. And that's what Catholicism really, you know, despite the sins of people succumbing to things, because there's another interesting book, another tangible, I'll just mention it, uh, Christian Slaves, Muslim Masters. It's a great academic work about the North African slave trade, the Barbary Pites, stuff like that. And it's really interesting because that's seen as like the source of modern slavery. 
a lot of them were pulling in the African tribes from Central and Western Africa. Um, and then they were pulling in Christians from Europe. And it was really crazy because it was like this kind of like Greek pederasty culture where the Christians were being used as basically sex slaves. And they were even interbreeding with them to bring about European stock to like make their elite. And it's really twisted stuff. But what's really interesting is if you read about these cultures, it's just kind of like the liberal progressive culture as it's degenerated to now. And that's actually the source of that slavery. And it's really interesting that they project that slavery onto Catholic Christendom. So is that just the projection game where they're actually the source of it, just like this wasp racism? Yeah, totally. The, I mean, the slave trade was always happening uh, by the Mohammedans and the trans-Saharan uh, slave trade, which was the African, it was Arabs and blacks enslaving blacks. That's what it was. Arabs and blacks enslaving blacks. So you want to make this a black and white issue. That's not that's not the issue. And then and the you Europeans have, yeah. that came to that. Exactly. Yeah. And you think about it. This is like the bondage of Egypt, right? This is all North Africa, Egyptian territory. The Christians that go in there that adopt those practices, they're mixing with the nations, right? Mm -hmm. They're adopting Egyptian bondage, which you're not supposed to do. And that leads to problems. And of course, that led to transatlantic slave trading and then all the bad stuff done with that. Yeah, the transatlantic slave trade is based on a thousand years of Mohammedan slave trade. So it's uh, a, a very much of a problem. And look what happened with that. After people can succumb to it, their Christian consciences finally caught up with them. And then the slave trade was abolished. So there's other act aspects of that, too. But what's the real issue here? So, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, just to wrap it up, I mean... There was the other stuff that we, maybe next time we'll get into with like the, the John D weirdness and that that map we started out with where the occultism spreads to bring the Renaissance. We can talk about that next time. But I think it's interesting because that whole group will synthesize on the black legend and hating the Jesuits. And even the spirits are telling them to avoid, uh, you know, the Jesuits, which is very interesting. And that there, there seems to be like this occult ecu uh, ecumenical movement where they all start getting attracted to each other where the holy roman emperor in prague rudolph ii was super into all this esoteric stuff there's a lot of occult kabbalistic jews that end up there john d is directed by the so-called angels to go there there's a connection of venice uh leo x all this uh you know heliocentrism starts rising and stuff like that it, it's just very interesting and that all synthesizes on being against the jesuits and then usually having some sort of beef with Catholic Spain as well. Yeah. So preview next week, we'll get into more crazy alchemy. We've got the English empire rising British empire. We've got the Masons eventually come to the story and then we've got the modern era. So stay tuned. Uh, once again, please uh, see the sources below. Please support us by buying the audiobook that supports Michael and myself um, you can become a patron of Meaning of Catholic at patreon.com slash Meaning of Catholic. For now, let's offer up an Our Father, always for liberation from this conspiracy of the fallen angels. True liberation, true freedom, freedom in Jesus Christ, the King. Nomine Patris, Fidi Spiritus Sancti. Amen. 
Pater noster qui es in cedis, sancti vegeto nomen tuum, adveniet regnum tuum, fia voluntas tua, sicut in cielo et in terra. Panam nostrum quotidianum de nobis odie, et dimite nobis debita nostra, sicut et nos dimitimus debitoribus nostris, et nenos inducas in tentationum, sed libera nos amalo. Amen. Nomine Patris, et Fidei, Spiritus Sancti. Amen. For the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. Amen.